If you'd like to turn in the book of Hebrews to chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning for this study. Let's just uh, bow our hearts and come before the Lord, shall we? Well, Father God, we do just commit this time of study to you, Lord. We just ask that you give us understanding of these things. Um, Lord, help us to see what the, the writer intended and uh, the things that were written. Um, but Father, more than that, what your Holy Spirit intended, um, not just for the uh, Jewish audience that would have received this, but Lord, for us right now, uh, that these things would be an edification, they would be an encouragement, they would be an exhortation to walk with you, uh, Lord, to keep our eyes upon the author and finisher of our faith. So we just give you this time, speak to us now through your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began proper our study um, through this incredible book. Um, and just looking how the, the writer um, just starts off by speaking to this audience, this Jewish audience that would receive this, um, looking at the way that Jesus is greater than everything, uh, greater than the angels. Uh, and that's the, really the, the, the point that's been made in the first chapter. Um, we're we're going to see as we go into this chapter Jesus is greater in so many ways, and we're going to see this comparison against the law. We're going to see this comparison going into chapter 3, which we'll move on to next week, um, that Jesus is greater than Moses, uh, all these things. And, and the hard part of this is for the audience that received this originally, that tradition is a very powerful thing. Tradition is something that, when it's embedded, is very hard to, to let go of. Uh, I'm sure that some of you have uh, gone through that, that wrestling uh, in times past when you've come to understand that Christmas isn't all that Christmas uh, is in terms of the traditional sense. I mean, the, 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 the world and tradition has told us that we had three kings. Um, and we even have their names on the carol sheets. Some of you noticed that. And those three kings apparently go to Bethlehem to give their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Um, so baby Jesus, who was lying in this cattle shed, surrounded by animals and uh, laying in this, this straw bed and so on, this feeding trough. And you start to understand as you study scriptures that you know we grow in grace and knowledge that none of those things are true. You know, there's all sorts of things. There's, I actually had a, an, an interesting conversation with a chap um, a year or so ago at Creation Fest who'd written a book all about the Star of Bethlehem. And he was a little bit unhappy when I pointed out that there was no star of Bethlehem. The star never resided over Bethlehem. That, that's something that we've got from tradition. Now, the problem is, when we come up against those things, sometimes it's like, oh, oh that can't be right, because we've not heard it before. It's a bit of a challenge to what we believe and what we perceive. Um, and yet, as we start to understand the real truth behind the Christmas story, we understand that the, the reason the shepherds were chosen was because their job was looking after the sacrificial lambs that were in those fields around Bethlehem. The, their, their, their sole purpose was to be used in the sacrifices up in Jerusalem, some eight miles away. So these weren't just any old ordinary sheep. They were very special sheep. They had to be without spot, without blemish, if they were to be used in sacrifices. And the shepherd's job, when these, these lambs were born, they would bring them into their lambing town, which was just on the edge of Bethlehem itself. And they wrapped them in these swaddling bands. Interestingly, those swaddling bands were made of the priest's old garments. So when garments were old and they needed them no longer or they needed to replace them, those clothes were basically turned into these, these strips of cloth. And the, rams, the lambs were, were wrapped in these pieces of cloth to protect them so they wouldn't thrash around and hurt them or damage them because it was so important that these lambs were without spot and blemish. Well, then we hear, of course, that the angels come to the shepherds and tell them, and, and they don't give them specific details. They don't give them a postcode to go to. They didn't have sat nav back in that day. They just simply tell them that the sign is they're going to find this babe lying in a manger. That's not much information, unless, of course, you know exactly what that was meant by the manger. And for the shepherds, the, the manger was this crop of rock that was in the bottom of their lambing tower, which was a place that was typically ceremonial, ceremonially clean. It's where those lambs, those newborn lambs were placed, as lambs destined for the temple sacrifice, who would be wrapped in, effectively, the priest's garments. The first clothing that Jesus wore was the clothing of a priest. 
And, and so you start to see the spiritual power behind the truth of the gospel and these, these things. And even the, the, the Magi, when they arrive, it wasn't just some random thing. The, the star, when they come out from seeing Herod, they see it again for the first time since they'd seen it previously. And they rejoice because now it doesn't lead them to Bethlehem, it leads them to Nazareth, where Luke tells us Jesus and the family return after the birth. They go up to Jerusalem for the offerings and so on that they had to give after a baby was born. And then they return home. That's what Luke tells us. They went back to Nazareth. That's where they lived. Why would they hang around in Bethlehem? It wasn't their home. But now, again, all these things, you know, and, and again, just to, to finish that off, you know, we see a beautiful picture that first we have the Lamb of God, the shepherds. And then there's an interval of anything up to two years, it's confirmed by Scripture, before the Magi arrive to confirm that Jesus is the King of the Jews. Why is that significant? Well, the crown of Israel had been taken to Babylon. Zedekiah was the last king of Israel. And when he was taken away, effectively the kingdom, the crown was taken away and was taken to Babylon and effectively resided there until Daniel eventually, as he's taken captive and so on, becomes the chief of the Magi. And obviously he passes down the things that he'd learned, the things he'd understood from the prophecies and the scriptures and the things that have been revealed to him. And so these Magi, some 500 years later, still holding on to the things that Daniel had said, go back to Jerusalem. Their job, one of the Magi's jobs was to anoint and appoint kings. That's what they did. They were a, a, um, a Medo-Persian um, uh, priestly sect in a sense, and their, their job was to anoint and appoint kings. And so they now arrive in Jerusalem. They go to Herod, and Herod and all Jerusalem are troubled by their arrival because there wasn't just three on camels. They could have anything up to a thousand with the outriders and everybody else. And, and all of Jerusalem shakes as this power, rival power, the Parthian Empire was the rival power to the Roman Empire and they arrive and say, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? Not one that's been given the title by Rome, which Herod had been, he was, he was an, uh, from Edom Jumaan. So Herod's nervous that there is a rightful king of Jerusalem. So they come not to do anything else other than acknowledge and ratify that Jesus is the king. So the shepherds arrive to say Jesus is the perfect lamb and the major arrive to say that Jesus is the rightful king. The first time Jesus comes, he comes as the Lamb. The second time, after an interval of time, Jesus returns as the King of Kings. It's just incredible picture, incredible symmetry, and all these things. Now, the problem is, again, with, with, with tradition, sometimes people get really upset when we tell them those things. They don't like it because, well, it's, but, you know, and you go to any garden center. My mum's always got in trouble because Christmas time she goes to garden centers and she goes and finds a little major scene and she goes and gets the kings and moves them down the other end of the garden center. Yeah, this is the little thing she does. Because she says the kings weren't there. They didn't arrive until much later. And it's true. But some people get really upset with the whole traditional thing or the way we've done things. Well, the writer to the Hebrews was writing to a group of people that had built their lives on tradition. They were used to tradition. And, and so now, whilst they were accepting that Jesus is the Messiah, it was very hard for them, hard for them to let go of the traditions the things that their fathers and their fathers before them and their fathers before them, going back generations, had acknowledged and had, had held to with all their heart and their soul, their mind. This had been what they had lived for many Jews. This was so important to them. And now there's this quandary about well, where does the law fit in? And, and surely the law is still important. We must keep the law. And, and this is exactly what Paul addresses in his letter to the Galatian Christians, and as I've made it clear already, I believe that Paul is the, the author of the Hebrews as well, and it may be that, as we've said already in our opening sessions, that Galatians and Hebrews were actually all part of one letter in the first place. So many similar themes and ideas come through them. But these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish Christians, were having their faith in what they believed, in their tradition, shaken. And this is why Jesus says that, you know, tradition makes the word of no effect, and we need to be very careful we all end up with traditions and we get into things that we do and we get comfortable with them. But we're talking about things that have gone for generations. And this is why the writer to the Hebrews is really hammering this point and warning them about drifting we're going to see in a moment. We looked in our opening session about those five warnings. Well, this morning we get to the first one of those warnings actually in the text. And how dangerous it is to drift from the things that we've been told. And we'll go through that in a second. Let's start, first of all, by just reading the chapter through. Um, what I wanted to do is actually, rather than just read the text as we've got it, um, there's a number of fantastic commentaries on the book of Hebrews 
Um, this one was actually one that was recommended by Charles Spurgeon. Uh, it's actually by a, a Scottish gentleman called Archibald MacLean, uh, and it's, it's very old. Um, but this is his paraphrase of the chapter. So you follow the chapter through in your Bibles in chapter 2. Uh, and then I want to read something else to you as well, just to get a kind of a, a really good run into this. So, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, and we'll come to the details and break it down in a while, but therefore, since the Son by whom God has now spoken to us is so vastly superior in nature and office, not only to all the former prophets, but even to the highest angels, we ought the more earnestly to attend to the things which we heard spoken by him, lest at any time we should run out like leaky vessels. For if the word of the law, which was spoken by the ministry of angels from Mount Sinai, was firm, and every willful transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward in a corresponding punishment, how shall we escape a still severer punishment if we neglect or disregard so great salvation as is declared in the gospel, which having, at its beginning, being spoken by the Lord Jesus himself, was confirmed to us by those chosen witnesses, his apostles and others, who heard him. God also bearing joint testimony to the truth of what they declared, both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and distributions of the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. We ought therefore more especially to regard the things which were spoken by the Son, under whose administration we are placed, for whatever power and authority God had conferred upon angelic rulers in the former dispensation, to the angels he had not subjected the world to come, or gospel economy concerning which we speak, but he has put all things under the sole government of the Son, as one in a certain place has testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the Son of man that thou visitest him? For to save fallen man from perishing, Thou madest him, who is thine own son, a little while lower than angels. And in consequence of his humiliation, thou crowned him with glory and honor, and had set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast subjected all things under his feet. For in that he subjected all things to him, he has left nothing unsubjected to him. But now we see not yet all things subjected to him in respect of their being fully and finally subdued, as they shall be at last. But we see Jesus, who for a little while, or during the days of his flesh, was made lower than the angels, that so, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Him we see, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, at the Father's right hand, where he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet." For however offensive his sufferings and death may be to carnal man, who savour not the things that be of God, yet it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into the heavenly glory, to perfect the captain of their salvation through sufferings, and that they through his sufferings might also be sanctified and perfected, as he stands in the closest union and relation to them. For both he who sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one Father, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them his brethren, saying to his Father, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing praise unto thee. And again he says, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Since Therefore, the children whom God gave him to redeem did partake of flesh and blood. He also, in like manner, partook of these things in becoming the seed of the woman, that he might be capable of dying for them, and that through his death he might defeat him who, by introducing sin, had established the power or reign of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who, through fear of death and its consequences, were all their precious lifetimes subject to bondage. For verily... He took not hold of fallen angels by assuming their nature to save them, but to the seed of Abraham he thus took hold. And so became that seed promised to Abraham, in whom all nations are blessed. Hence it behoved him, 
in all things to be made like his brethren, that having experience of their temptations and afflictions and being capable of dying for them, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, in order to expiate the sins of the people. For in that he himself suffered being tempted, he is able and inclined from experience and sympathy to succor them who are tempted. I thought it was quite a helpful paraphrase of the chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning. Now please, would you just indulge me, because a lot of translations can uh, miss the mark and are not always very helpful. But this is a translation I've got called the Jewish New Testament. Uh, and it's written by Jews it's from a Jewish perspective, uh, looking at their Messiah. And I just want to go back and read in this, just chapter 1 and chapter 2 again. Um, because I think there's some insights that come out from this. And we get the Jewishness of the ideas that are here. Uh, hopefully some of those things we just looked at a minute ago we'll explore in detail as we go into the text. Um, but I'm just going to go back and read chapter 1 into chapter 2. So we get a real flow of this this morning. So... <clears throat> In days gone by, God spoke in many and varied ways to the fathers through the prophets. But now, in the Achachemim, which just simply means uh, the uh, end times, but now in the Achachemim, he has spoken to us through his son, to whom he has given ownership of everything, and through whom he created the universe. This son is the radiance of the Shekinah, the very expression of God's essence, upholding all that exists by his powerful word. And after he had through himself made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of Gudula Baromin, which is simply the highest or the power above. So he has become much better than angels. And the name God has given him is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Also, God never said of any angel, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Indeed, when speaking of angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his servants fiery flames. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. You rule your kingdom with a scepter of equity. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, O God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy in preference to your companions. And, another quote that we have from Scripture, In the beginning, the Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. Heaven is the work of your hands. They will vanish, but you will remain. Like clothing, they will all grow old, and you will fold them up like a coat. Yes, they will be changed like clothing, but you remain the same. Your years will never end. Moreover, to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Aren't they all merely spirits whom serve, sent out to help those whom God will deliver? Therefore we must pay much more careful heed to the things we have heard, so that we will not drift away. For if the word of God spoken through angels became binding, so that every violation and act of disobedience received its just deserts in full measure, how then will we escape if we ignore such a great deliverance? This deliverance, which was first declared by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, while God also bore witness to it with various signs and wonders and miracles, and with gifts of the Ruach Hagodesh, which is literally the Holy Spirit, which he distributed as he chose. For it was not to angels that God subjected the Ola Chaba, that's simply uh, the world or the age to come. Uh, speaking of the millennial kingdom, it's not to angels that the Lord will give the millennial kingdom, which is what we're talking about. And there is a place where someone has given this solemn testimony, what is mere man that you concern yourself with him, or the son of man that you watch over him with such care. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything in subjection under his feet. In subjecting everything to him, he left nothing unsubjected to him. However, at present, we don't see everything subjected to him, at least not yet. But we do see Yeshua, who indeed was made for a little while lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. Because 
He suffered death so that by God's grace he might taste death for all humanity. For in bringing many sons to glory, it was only fitting that God, the creator and preserver of everything, should bring the initiator of their deliverance to the goal through sufferings. For both Yeshua, who sets people apart from God, and the ones being set apart, have a common origin. This is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers when he says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Also, I will put my trust in him. And then it goes on. Here I am along with the children God has given me. Therefore, since the children share a common physical nature as human beings, he became like them and shared that same human nature so that by his death he might render ineffective the one who had power over death, that is, the adversary, and thus set free those who had been in bondage all their lives because of their fear of death. Indeed, it is obvious that he does not take hold of angels to help them on the contrary. He takes hold of the seed of Abraham. This is why he had to become like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful Kohan Gadol, that's in the Hebrew, as uh, the high priest. In the service of God, making kapra, which again uh, is the atonement or propitiation, the payment in full for their sins of the people. For since he himself suffered death, he was put to the test. He is able to help those who are being tested now. Okay, let's go back then and start to, to look at this chapter, take it apart piece by piece and see what lessons we can learn for us. Hopefully that what we've just gone through was kind of helpful just to get an idea of the, the flavour, the, the thread of this as we're going forward. Uh, firstly, chapter 2 starts with therefore, and I'm sure you've heard it before, that whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. Well, we're building on what we've just looked at in the previous chapter, just reviewed that as well. So because God has spoken to us in the language of his son, in the person of his son, because God has revealed himself through his son, although he, he gave us partial pictures in the past through prophets and dreams people had, and the likes of Joseph had dreams that, that revealed that which God was going to do, and so on, many other ways God spoke in the past. But now we have the full revelation of God through the person of his son. And because of that, and because of the fact that we've seen in the previous chapter that Jesus is above the angels, he's greater than the angel in every, in angels in every respect, that the relationship that God has with his son is not the same as he has with angels. So because of all of those things, because of the greatness of the one who is our saviour, the writer says we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Now that idea of drifting is absolutely implied in the Greek text that we have. The idea is that you have a boat without an anchor, it will drift. I was listening to various commentaries, but I was listening to John Corson and his commentary on this. He was talking about a time when he had gone for a, a family trip and uh, they were going to go out on uh, a river in, uh, in America, or North America. And they, they, they got in the boat, they had some issues, they had a flat tire getting there and so on. But they finally got to where they were going, they got out in the boat, um, but then they, they had a problem with the engine. And so one of them said, I'll just throw the anchor overboard. So his sister was in the boat. She threw the anchor overboard. The problem was it wasn't attached to anything. So the anchor just sank. And they started drifting. And they said, at that point, it's not a big problem. But the river they were on ends up going to the Niagara Falls. And, you know, there's that realization that if we don't do something, we're going to have a real problem. Well, hopefully that kind of gives you the idea of what the, the writer here is trying to say. We should be so careful because drifting may not seem like a problem at the time. But if it's not checked, if it's not dealt with, if it's not addressed, it can lead to a serious problem. You know, Scripture speaks of those whose faith has been shipwrecked. If, if a ship doesn't have an anchor, then there's a good chance it's going to end up either getting lost at sea, lost with the waves, or just crashing against the shore. There's all sorts of problems that can occur if there's not that stability, and there's not that anchor. We, we need an anchor for our souls, and Jesus, we're told, is exactly that. But the admonition here is that we should give earnest heed to the things which we have heard. It was um, Scott I was listening to who came and spoke here a little while ago, and I was listening to his commentary on this, and he just said, it matters more what you believe than what you do. I thought that was really quite, quite insightful. 
because so many people focus on what we do as Christians and the belief bit kind of gets put to one side. But he's spanning it around. It's actually, it matters more what you believe. What you believe will affect everything you do. When it comes to the Word of God, the Word of God has to be the, the foundation. It has to be the center. It has to be the non-negotiable thing in our lives. And the writer here says, again, that we must give more, the more earnest heed. This isn't just something that's a casual thing. This requires effort. It requires intensity on our part that we really truly focus on the things that are true. The things which we have heard is going to come on to a little bit more in a moment. But there's any time we should let them slip. You know, the danger of drifting really comes not through a willful intention to walk away from God. It comes from allowing doctrine not to be so important to us. When something isn't that important anymore, and you think, well, actually, you know what, maybe that's not such a big deal after all. I remember speaking to somebody who uh, many years ago said to me that as a young man I was very kind of um, fiery when it came to doctrine, and, you know, uh, to me it was such an important thing. And they said, oh, you know, as you get older, you'll soften, and, you know, you become more accepting of other people's opinions. And that's just a maturity thing. Uh, And as I've got older, I think that's wrong. I don't think that, you know, just becoming more accepting of other people's opinions is a maturity thing. Yes, we should be tolerant of other people. We should accept their position. But not when it comes to the truth. Not when it comes to to people who are trying to pervert that which Scripture says. I don't think we should ever give up the zeal we have for God's Word. Because if we do, that becomes the first little step. Dropping that anchor overboard with no rope wasn't initially a problem. But it would become a problem later on. We have to have an anchor. God's word has to be that anchor. God's word is non-negotiable. Whatever the world says, whatever other churches say, whatever even our Christian friends may say, God's word is the final authority. And we should never, ever move from that. Even in terms of the way we conduct our lifestyle, regarding our relationships, regarding our language, our vocabulary. The word of God speaks on all of these things. And we can't ever get to the point of saying, well, actually, that doesn't really matter so much. No, it all matters. Everything matters. And the writer goes on and says, for if the word, he's going to give us this comparison now between the gospel that we have and the law. And he says, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, I unshakable, unmovable, the law was given, and it cannot be, and it should never be broken from a Jewish mindset and the way it was given. And he says, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. So just think about the law, how important that was, that was given by angels. But he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Or another way of phrasing that, it came out in McLean's comments on that, that if we neglect so great a gospel. The we here, by the way, I think, denotatively it's speaking to the Hebrew Christians that were receiving the letter. But connotatively it's a wider picture. Because back in the opening statement, God who at sundry times in diverse manners spoken time past unto the fathers by the prophets, and these last days spoken unto us. Well, who's the us? Well, of course it's believers, but actually it's the whole world. The whole world is included. God has spoken to the world through the person of his son. And this statement, how shall we escape? Yeah, of course it applies to Christians, but it applies to the whole world. How shall anybody escape if they neglect the gospel? If The law was given, and those that didn't keep to the law would be punished. And the law was only given by angels, we're told. We'll come talk about that in a while. We've been given this gospel through Jesus Christ. How how should we escape if we if we neglect this? And which is, of course, as Jesus told us, the only way of salvation. It's so great a salvation. It's so great a gospel. He goes on and says, which at the first. So initially, began to be spoken of by the Lord. Now we're going to get three proofs of the authority of the gospel given to us in these next two verses. So the first proof we have is that Jesus himself gave us this gospel. And there's many ways we can go to history. We can show all the prophecies that spoke of the coming Messiah. We can look at those scriptures that all testified what the Messiah would do when he came. And then we simply look at Jesus' life, and we see that Jesus was the fulfillment of all those prophecies. Jesus really was the Messiah. And Jesus is the one who has given us this gospel. That's the first proof we have, the fact that he gave it, and we can 
The history testifies to the person of Jesus. And Jesus, of course, who rose from the dead. Again, one of the great facts of history. The world would love to deny it and say that the resurrection didn't take place. But everybody that's ever looked at this with any sincerity, as far as I'm aware, I've not, any, not met anybody or read of anybody that has studied the details of the resurrection and has said, no, nah, it couldn't have happened. Because there's too many things, there's too many evidences. Josh McDowell, in his classic defense of the Christian faith, in evidence that demands a verdict, goes through the details about the resurrection. He wrote another book some years ago called The Resurrection Factor. You know, there's the, the book Who Moved the Stone. I'm sure some of you are familiar with some of these books out there. That just go through the details. That's by Frank Morrison. And, you know, he, he goes through the question of, okay, how did the stone get moved? We have this elite Jewish, uh, sorry, elite Roman guard. Typically 16 soldiers would have been stationed there. If any of them had fallen asleep, they were instructed to set them on fire. Now, there's a good kind of reason to stay awake. You know, if any of them had been party to somebody stealing the body, and then none of them owned up as to who was responsible, well, not only would they all be put to death as a, as a group, but they would go to the villages that those soldiers came from, and they would kill every man, woman, child in those villages. I mean, these soldiers, there was such a, a big cost for them if that body had ever been taken or stolen. Of course, the morning of the resurrection, the stone is moved. The Romans would never have done that. There's no way. And you start to go through the details. The evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. And so the first evidence we have here, this, this gospel we have, is that God himself gave it through Jesus Christ. And it first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So now we're talking about the apostles, those that walked with Jesus, that saw Jesus, that saw Jesus walking on the water. They saw Jesus open the eyes of the blind. They saw Jesus heal the lame and the sick. And those that were inflicted by demons and evil spirits, Jesus cast those spirits out. The disciples saw those things. I mean, Peter goes down to the, the seashore one day, opens a fish's mouth, and there's a coin inside. It happens to be the money that he needs to pay the taxes. I mean, those things don't just happen. These disciples were absolutely convinced. And we know they were convinced because, as far as we are aware, every one of those disciples, with the possible exception of John, died as a martyr. They died for their faith. And, and when you look at the way they died, I mean, Philip, I believe it was, that was, uh, was skinned alive and then dragged behind chariots until he died. I mean, you can't think of more painful deaths than these things. You know, Peter... Uh, from history we understand, was crucified upside down. Because when they went to crucify him, he made the comment apparently that he wasn't worthy to be crucified as his Lord. And so they thought that would be quite funny to turn him upside down. But you, know, you look at every one of those disciples going through the torture, the, the torment they did before they were martyred. Not one of them said, oh, you know, okay, we, we, we made it all up, it was a hoax. Every one of them went to their death gladly professing that Jesus had risen from the dead. And that this gospel was the true gospel. This was good news. That's what the gospel is. So, first of all, Jesus speaks this. Then it was confirmed by the apostles, by those that heard him. And then, verse 4 tells us, the third proof, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles. And then another thing, and with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So, there's a number of things here. So signs and wonders being done and diverse miracles. I mean, you could possibly lump all that together, but either way, God was doing some incredible things through those people. I mean, think of Paul when he was in jail in Philippi. And he's there with Silas singing praises to God. They were in the lowest part of the dungeon, and typically... It's where all the excrement, all the urine would just flow down to the bottom and they were basically sitting in that. But they're singing praises to God in that situation. Just incredible faith they had. And then all of a sudden there's, a, there's an earthquake and the doors and the bars and everything shake and they're loosened and they can escape, but they choose not to. And, and eventually the jailer comes running in thinking that he's going to be put together because all the prisoners have escaped and they're all still there. And then Paul and Silas witnessed to him and he and his family are saved as a result of that. Incredible miracles. Of course, 
Peter himself, earlier on in the book of Acts, when he's in prison, suddenly an angel comes, wakes him up. He, he thinks it's a dream to start with. It takes him out of prison. Remember, he gets to the house where they're all upstairs praying for him. He knocks on the door and Rhonda comes down to open the door. and She's she so excited. She leaves him out there. You know, Possibly by this point, there's, there's people out hunting for him, looking for him. And he's kind of thinking, now would be a good time to let me in. And, and she goes, Peter's outside, Peter's outside. Listen, but he can't be outside because we're praying that God will release him from prison. <laughs> this is just the irony of sometimes we don't really believe in the prayers we're praying. But God did exactly what they had been praying for. And Peter was miraculously released. You know, and there's so many other things. You go through the book of Acts, you see the way God works, and the witnesses, the signs, the wonders, the miracles that were done. Of course, Peter and John going up to the temple, and they, they heal the man that's there. And they say, you know, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have we give you in the name of Jesus. Stand up and walk. So these witnesses, these, these testimonies, again, proving that this gospel is bigger, it's greater, this is God's plan of redemption for mankind. And the other thing that's mentioned here, and the gifts that the Holy Ghost gave. Now notice something really important here. In fact, just turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. And onwards. We read in verse 8 of Ephesians. Wherefore he said, when he ascended up on high, Ephesians 4, verse 8, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Who gave the gifts? Jesus. His Holy Spirit. And then verse 11, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So these gifts are given to the church. Not, not by people going, you know what, I, I, I've got a few skills, I've got a good skill set, maybe I can help the church in this way. No, God is the one that gives the gifts, gives the abilities. First Corinthians 12, we have a, a chapter that really starts all about gifts. Paul there says, now concerning spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1, Brethren, I would not have you ignorant. I love it, Paul says those things quite frequently. It's like, come on, listen, think about these things. You don't be in a position where you don't understand. You should know these things. He says, you know that you were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols. Love that. Even as you were led. And he goes on and says, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. It's for the benefit of the church. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. Notice the source. It's not us. It's not that we have some ability it's not that we, we sit around and think, well, actually, you've got a good gift there, or you've got a gift. It's because God has done this work. God chooses which gifts he gives to his people. Verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another the diverse kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the self-same Spirit, dividing to every man, Severally as he wills. This is God that does this work. And this is what we're told here in Hebrews. That God is the one who chose what gifts he would give. But those gifts themselves are a great witness and a testimony. Certainly prophecy in the local context, not prophesying future events, because everything's revealed in scripture, God will not add to his word. But God does give within the church the gift of prophecy. And people can speak words of knowledge into situations as the Holy Spirit allows. For some, it may be the gift of speaking in tongues or praying in tongues, worshipping God in a prayer language that we don't understand naturally. We see it, of course, on the, the day of Pentecost. But I still believe, you know, that there's a, a branch within the church that believes all the gifts have come to an end, that there are no gifts being used now. Well, that's, that's not what this implies. No, those, those gifts are, are given by the Holy Spirit who came to be our companion, to be with us Forever, we're told in John's Gospel. Now these gifts are still for today, and God still uses them amongst his people for his glory. Yes, there's a lot of abuse of those things, but that's a separate issue. So, we get on to verse 5. For unto the angels 
Has he not put subject, in subjection the world to come whereof we speak? Now, again, the idea is not the uh, eternal kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, or that. The idea is the, the kingdom that will be on earth when we pray, thy kingdom come. That's what we're praying. We're not praying about the eternal kingdom. We're praying about the millennial reign of Christ when he will sit on the throne of David. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about the, the Christmas story as it is. I mean, it's one of those great statements that Gabriel makes to Mary when he's speaking about the Messiah coming in. Luke's Gospel, in the uh, statement that Gabriel makes, and this again, this is the angel Gabriel making a statement on behalf of God, and I think you can conclude quite simply that an angel isn't going to come and uh, tell lies. And we read, it's in chapter 1, in verse 32, Gabriel says to Mary, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. That's a nationalistic Jewish throne. It's the, it's the throne that back in Samuel 7, the Lord makes his promise to David that David's descendants will sit on the throne forever. But that's not supposed to be some spiritual thing. That's the real throne, the throne of Israel. That's why the Magi had to come and anoint Jesus as king or to, to acknowledge that he was the rightful king. And of course the, the disciples were expecting Jesus to establish the kingdom there and then. We, we see that at the beginning of Acts. They ask him after the resurrection, will you, will you at this time restore the kingdom? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons. But this statement here, Again, chapter five, sorry, verse 5 of Hebrews 2. For unto the angels says he not, but in subjection the world to come, or the kingdom to come, whereof we speak. But in one certain place, testify, saying, now this is from Psalm 8, verse 4 onwards, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visited him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honour, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. So this is the, the quote, the statement that we have. Let's just turn, if you will, to Psalm 8. Because you look at the context of that. It just starts, Psalm 8, verse 1, and says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies, and thou mightest still, sorry, that thou mightest still, the enemy and the avenger. And then, when I consider the heavens, okay, this is a psalm of David. David, those nights on those hillsides around Bethlehem, is it any, any coincidence that the same sheep that effectively David was looking after, those descendants of those sheep eventually would be the same sheep in those fields that the shepherds were looking after, the same fields. And as David is there looking up one night at the stars, just being in awe of God's creation. When I consider the heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Just, just be blown away by what God has created. He says, what is man? Do you're mindful of him. How incredible that all the things that God has created, God actually cares about mankind. And the son of man, that thou visited him, because then we have this quote, thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. This is the quote that we have. That made him seem to have dominion over the works of thy hands, thou hast put all things under his feet. Now, just a couple of comments about the heavens that we look up in, just to get the context of why, the, why David says these things. The Milky Way, apparently, I've not measured it myself, but you know, approximately, is about 100,000 light years wide. Okay, it's kind of a big number, half for us to get our head around. That means if we were traveling, at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, it's going to take you, traveling 186,000 miles per second, it's going to take you 100,000 years just to cross our Milky Way galaxy. Uh, if you want it in miles, it's around about 6 trillion miles. Uh, it's phenomenal, it's huge. That's just our galaxy. But it's estimated that there are somewhere... These are just rounded numbers, of course. But somewhere around 100,000 million galaxies like ours. 100,000 million galaxies. And it would take 100,000 years to cross our galaxy on its own, going at 186,000 miles per second. So, without being insulting, but you know, we, we are just specks on a speck, which is our world, in a speck, which is our galaxy. 
I mean, it really is spectacular, yeah? And it's estimated again, 100,000 million stars per galaxy. It's really phenomenal. And as David is looking up and thinking about just the breadth of the heavens, but notice what he says, you know, the God just did all this. Let's read that again. The statement he says, when I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers. Just think how big God is. If God can do all that we've just spoken of there. Now, again, this week I've been standing on a number of platforms waiting for trains to try and get me to work and home from work and so on. And I'm, I'm used typically to getting on a train and I go straight into Waterloo in London and it's, you, you, you don't tend to think about the distance or even the speed sometimes. But some of these smaller stations, as you're standing there, the mainline trains come hurtling through. Now, <coughs> apparently, I was trying to see what, what speed they go. They're cleared to travel up to about 100 miles an hour, but apparently most of them go anything up to about 80 miles an hour. As you're standing on a platform and you see a train coming, you see the lights in the distance to start with, and you think, oh, I've been getting hopeful, thinking, oh, maybe this is the one for me. Uh, and all of a sudden, it goes hurtling past. And everything moves. And it's actually quite scary. If, you, if you're not expecting this train to come flying past, suddenly a train, only going about 80 miles an hour, comes flying past. Now, I've also, the opportunities I've had to go and speak up at Milton Keynes, standing on Milton Keynes' platform in the morning, the trains there go even faster because it's the high speed or the much faster trains, um, the Virgin trains and the other ones that go straight down to London. Um, and they go flying through. And they always give a quick announcement over the, uh, the tannoy. The next train's not stopping here. Please stand back from the platform. Make sure you have all your personal possessions with you. Please take hold of any push chairs. And you think, yeah, and all of a sudden this train goes by and everything blows and moves. And, and it's quite scary. And you think, you know what, you need to hold on to everything. Cause, but they're only traveling, you know, 100 or so miles an hour. The high-speed train in Kent only used to go up to, say, only, but it used to go up to about 140 miles an hour. And again, you stay on the platform when that goes by. It's phenomenal. Well, you think of these stars. You think, first of all, just think of the, the energy required to even move your car at, you know, 70 miles an hour, which is all we're legally allowed to do and all I'm sure you would ever do on a motorway. But, you know, you take it up to what trains do. You think of the energy. I mean, if you've ever sat on a platform, you watch a train move, and gradually it starts to, to get going and picks up speed. And, I don't know if it's a points failure, which we've had lots of this week, but that aside. When it's, when it's going, it's a lot of energy and effort to get this thing moving. But when you're thinking about these stars and through, hurtling through the universe, traveling at some 200,000 miles an hour, I mean, we can't even imagine that. You know, you, you know what it's like when you're going fast in your car, but it, it's, it's so much more than that. We can't imagine. But the amount of energy required to move those stars. And then you think of us. God, God has put the whole of the universe in motion, all these things going. The power that God has to move these things, to set everything in motion as it is, is breathtaking. And so... The writer of the Hebrews quotes David again. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man. It's interesting because prophetically we have a glimpse there of the Messiah because that title, the son of man, is Jesus' favorite title of himself. It's the title that Jesus uses most frequently in the Gospels of himself. The son of man. For that made him a little lower. Now, the, the idea here in the Greek is not lower in terms of rank so much. Uh, I mean, there is an element of that, but it's made for a little while. That's the idea. It's not little in terms of quantity, it's little in terms of time. And for a while, Jesus was made lower than the angels. Why? Because he became a man. A man had lost the dominion at that point. We'd lost title to the earth through Adam being deceived by Satan. Satan took the title of that which was not his. Just as the whole wonderful picture we talked about before with Haman and Mordecai and so on. And of course Haman, so intent to, to seek the blessing, he goes in before the king on that occasion, and the king's up all night, he's been reading the, the archives, he says you know, to, to Haman, what should the king do to someone who wants to bless? 
course, the king's thinking of Mordecai, who exposed a plot to assassinate him a little while before that. And he realized that nothing had been done to honor Mordecai. And so he asks Haman. Haman hates this Jew. And so Haman, with this huge ego, great picture of Satan, when he's asked this question, starts to think, well, who would the king like to honor more than me? And so he says to the king what he should do and how he should do it. And, you know, give him your ring and put him on your horse and have him parading the town. Have somebody walk in front of him and say, this is what the king does to the man he likes to honor. Well, you know, when God is creating the heavens and the earth, all the sons of God shouted for joy, we're told. The angels, they shouted for joy. Satan had to have been among them because if all means all, then all must be all and that would include Satan. So all the sons of God praised him as he's creating. They're looking at this world, and no doubt Satan, who we're told in Ezekiel, was the anointed cherub, the one who had the privilege to walk on the coals of fire before the throne. Effectively, he had a, a musical system built into his body, offering worship to, to the Lord. This anointed cherub, we're told. We don't understand all the details of the ranks of angels, but clearly he was very significant, very important, and very influential. And suddenly... Satan's in this position, seeing God create the earth, thinking, this is amazing, this is staggering. Looking at the heavens, and we've just been talking about some of those things. And then, suddenly God, on day six, creates man. And Satan's thinking, well, hang on, I thought God was doing this for me. I thought I was going to be the one that was given this. It's interesting, the Jews had all sorts of various ideas um, about the cosmology about space and stars and planets and so on. Um, and they believed that each of the angels had been given their own planet. And Mars was attributed to being given to Satan. But seemingly, whether well, there's anything in that at all, I don't know. I just find it curious because seemingly Satan thought, no, I want Earth. I want that one. That's the jewel. That's the really precious, special one. And in day six, God creates man and says, I'm giving it to, to Adam, to man. This one who I've made in my image. Of course, no angel is made in God's image. And that leads to this rebellion. Satan takes a third of the angels and then goes and basically usurps Adam's authority. Because Adam, through Eve to sin, and he becomes the God of this world. He gets what he wanted, but it was never rightfully his. And so Jesus, and this is the rest of the chapter that we'll, we'll read now, but the rest of the chapter tells us that Jesus had to come into his creation as a man to claim back that which Satan had stolen. To claim back that which Adam had lost. So verse 7 goes on as it says, Thou made him a little lower for a little while lower than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. That's the position Jesus has. Jesus for a while came down to this level, but of course he rose from the dead. He's now ascended above all things. He now sits at the right hand of the Father. He now has all honor, all power, all glory. God has committed all judgment unto the Son. And verse 8 says that thou hast put all things in subjection. Why is this statement made? Because the writer is trying to get a point across that Jesus is above the angels. That's not good news for Jehovah's Witnesses or for Mormons who have their particular ideas. They think that Jesus is an angel. Mormons think he's the brother of Lucifer. JWs think that he's Michael. No, we're told here that Jesus is above that. He can't be an angel. He's not an angel. He's of the same substance, the express image of God, as we're told in verse 3 of chapter 1. Now, we're told that God has put, thou, God has put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left not, he left nothing that is not put under him. So the point is that even the angels are under him. Everything is under the authority of Jesus Christ. Um, but he says, now we see not yet all things put under him. I'm just going to go to Daniel chapter 7 quickly. The first Corinthians, it just speaks there about the time when all things will be put under Jesus' feet. In Daniel chapter 7, I'm just going to read to you, uh, just verse 14, it says, And there was given unto him a, a, a dominion and a glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. It's speaking of the kingdom that Jesus Christ will rule and reign over. And as yet, Jesus doesn't have that position over the world. I mean, in terms of it's been decreed, it's been prophesied, it's going to happen, 
Satan tried to offer Jesus the kingdoms of the world, but as Satan always does, it's a shortcut. Shortcuts never are a good way of going about getting what God promises you. Do it in God's timing, in God's way. Of course, when Jesus returns, he will take control, take authority over this world. There's a point in Revelation, point it says that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, is the, the scripture. But the, the point is that, that we get to that point in Revelation when Jesus has effectively brought his judgment upon the earth through the tribulation, God has done that, and the, the, we see this transfer of power. That Satan loses his grip on the earth, and Jesus now says, right, it's mine. And that's what we see at the beginning of Revelation as well. As those scrolls are open and John weeps because no one's found worthy, and then all of a sudden we're told, no, Jesus is worthy. He's, he's worthy to open the scroll, to claim the world, the title of title deed of the earth for himself. And then we get to verse 9, the eternal purpose of all things. Okay, But we see Jesus, who was made, now this is again quoting what we just looked at, for a little while lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That was the purpose. Jesus came down to our level. I'll come back to that in, in a while when we get to the conclusion of the chapter. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. It's God's grace that allowed Jesus to go to the cross to taste death for every man. He would die in our place. He would pay the punishment, the wrath of God, on our behalf. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory. We had a second session through the study, we looked at that more specifically, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus has gone through this process. He suffered. He, he knows what we go through. And then it goes on, verse 11. For both he that sanctifies and they which are sanctified are all of one. We're all related now in Christ. God is our Father. And we go on to this. Um, uh, for both he that sanctifies and they who sanctify are all one, for which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren. So we've been invited into his family. We have been adopted. And now we have his name. Just as if you're adopted into a family, you would adopt the family name. But we've been adopted in. You know, we see that with Paul. Um, Paul goes to Cyprus, the governor of the island, Sergius Paulus, is converted. And seemingly, we have some really good evidence, Bill Cooper goes through the details of this, Paul becomes adopted by Sergius Paulus. And what does Paul do? Well, up until that point, he was known as Saul. But at that moment, his name changes. And he adopts the name of Sergius Paulus, who effectively adopts him as his own. He takes on that family name. Well, we have been adopted by God, and we take God's family name. And so he's not ashamed to call us his brethren, we're told. In the midst of the church, um, sorry, verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, or in that declaring thy name unto my brethren, it's giving his name unto us as well. We actually get this name for ourselves. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Again, because we now have his name, we also praise the Father in the same way. We have this relationship with the Father that Jesus was able to have when he was on earth. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Jesus had to become flesh and blood in order to accomplish this, that we could become family members with him. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus had to come in the likeness of, of sinful flesh came as Adam. He's referred to in Romans 5 as the second Adam. Jesus had to come as a man that he would claim back what Adam lost. He had to be of the family of Adam, just as we see this wonderful picture in the book of Ruth, this whole idea of the right of redemption, the, the, the laws regarding the land. It had to be a family member that would claim back that which is lost. And Jesus does that. He becomes a family member effectively of the human race and he brings us into this relationship with God the Father. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So he's now able to defeat Satan on the, this basis because he came without sin and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And that's one of the great fears, is it not? Death. 
You know, for us as Christians, death shouldn't be something we fear. I mean, I'm frightened of the way I might die. Uh, I mean, I'm really hoping that I'm raptured. That's, that's, that would be brilliant. That would be perfect. Um, drowning doesn't appeal to me. Uh, eaten by sharks is not on my list. You know, getting knocked over by a train doesn't really appeal to me. I know it would be fairly quick, but it would imagine it'd be quite painful for a moment. You know, the, 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 you know, dying in my sleep would probably be nice. Um, but, you know, people fear death. It's the big problem that humanity has. And it's always been there. But we're told, verse 15, he will deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Because there was no way out of that problem. But Jesus comes and offers us a way out. He defeats death. And he tells us there is now a way to have life eternal. Of course, Jesus had to die, and we have to learn that we have to die to that old life. So he leads us. We were told previously, I was going to mention that in chapter verse 10, about him being the captain of their salvation. A captain often is someone who leads, he goes before, the troops will follow after. Well, Jesus did exactly that. And he went through death, and we're told that we also must die to self, we die to that old life. Verse 16, for verily he took not on him, uh, him the nature of angels, Jesus didn't become an angel, or like an angel, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He doesn't become like an angel, and he's making this distinction here again, between angels, between Jesus, what he accomplished, and he comes down to our level to rescue us. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself suffered being tempted, and we know in the wilderness he was tempted, we know in Gethsemane there's that temptation, but Jesus was incapable of sin. Jesus didn't sin, couldn't sin. And so it becomes this model for us to follow. He's able to secure them that attempted. Now, Jesus knows what we're going through. He knows the challenges. We do struggle. And we should never be ashamed to admit that we struggle with things. But at the same time, as it goes back to the very first verse of the chapter, we've got to give earnest heed to the things we've learned, the things you've been taught throughout your lifetime as a believer, the things that God has shown you personally from his word. Hold on to those things. Never let them slip. You don't want to be drawn aside. You don't want to be without an anchor. And even if we are tempted, as John says, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just one last thing. This week, as you know, I started my new job. At the beginning of the week, totally understandably, the staff were very skeptical. They had a new boss coming in. They had no idea about me. They knew only about my background. And a number of them were quite uneasy. There was questions about well, what, what's going to happen, how things are going to work, and will I be able to do things the way I want to do? Will I do this? I don't want him to say I can't do it. And there were all sorts of conversations going on, and I had to take various individuals uh, into my office and sit down and have a chat with them and try and calm them down a little bit. Say, look, okay, I'm not coming to change everything. We're going to try and make things work better. I'm going to try and work with you, and so on. But then I started telling them on a one-by-one -one basis about my background and my experience. And when I was able to say to them that Actually, I started in the same role that you're doing. I did the same job. I know the problems you've got. And I totally understand some of your frustrations. And one of the reasons I'm here is to help solve those frustrations for you. Suddenly, they were like, oh, that's great. You see, because they knew that I'd been in their shoes, that I understood their problems, they knew that I was able to help them with those problems. Not a brilliant example but in a roundabout way, it's, this is what is being said here. That Jesus came down to our level. This isn't a God who's so remote, so aloof, that we have no real idea of what he's like. This is somebody who came down to our level. He lived on earth. He went through living in a family. He knew what it's like to be in a family with the stresses and pressures and difficulties and the challenges. Jesus knew what it was like to be a teenager. Particularly when other people were mocking him and poking fun at him. And we read about that in Psalm 69. You know, Jesus knew what it was like to work for a living. And the pressures and the stresses. I'm sure Jesus experienced disgruntled customers at times. Jesus probably knew what it was like at time at home when things were really tight financially. We don't know much about what happened to Joseph. All we know is he just disappears off the scene after Jesus is 12. At some point, Joseph is no longer there. 
We, we don't know the background and the details, but it must have been hard sometimes. Jesus knew that. He went through all of that. He's been where we are. He's been in our shoes. But now he calls us effectively to walk in his. He's been there before us. He's been tempted and he's able to help us when we're tempted. Next week we'll go on and we build on this. Jesus is better than the law. The law was given to angels. Although it's not specifically detailed in Exodus and so on, it's something that the Jews understood and believed and clearly we have kind of confirmation of that fact. That the law itself, somehow God had ministered it to the people through angels. There's various questions and things that the commentary is trying to address as to how that happened. But nevertheless, it's here, it's clear enough in Scripture that somehow the law was given through the ministry of angels. But the gospel that we believe and hold to was given directly by God's Son to us. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for these things that we've been able to think about and ponder. Father, we are amazed that you would consider us when we look at all of your creation and what you can do, your enormous and incredible power. And yet, Lord, all of this, all of creation, has been for that purpose of bringing sons to glory. Lord, whether we're male or female, we're given that position of sonship, the right of the firstborn. And we just thank you, Lord. Lord, we don't don't need to keep saying we don't deserve it. We know we don't deserve it, but you chose us. You loved us. You've adopted us. Not because in ourselves there was any worth, but because you wanted to. This chapter speaks of your grace. Lord, may we live in that grace, and because of that grace, respond with lives of worship. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.